mornings we're studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. We pick things up in John's Gospel, chapter 20, verse 24. Now, Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. And he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Wow. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. And then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, You have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the privilege of turning to your book, your unchanging, eternal book. And we thank you, Lord, that we're able to turn to it in fellowship with you in your Holy Spirit. And we ask, Lord, as we study this passage now together, that your Holy Spirit would speak to each one of our hearts today. We want to hear from you through your word, Lord. Nothing else, no other voice, just you. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would take the truth, all of the purposes that are bound up for these verses being in your book, Lord, that you'd lift them off of the page and that you would give them a living, daily relationship deepening and faith building place in each one of our lives this morning. We look to you for it, Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. There are many people in this world who believe that the surest basis for belief in something comes out of their ability to test it by one of their physical senses. In other words, if I if we can touch something, it must be real. If we can see something, then it must be true. But Jesus declares here that that isn't necessarily true at all. That there is a sure and there is a more blessed basis for faith than even the physical senses of sight and of touch. And we want to talk about that a little bit this morning. We remember that as we looked at verses 19 through 23 last week, and that establishes the context of Jesus appearing to Thomas here, Um, most specifically among the others here in verses 24 uh, through 29, that on the evening of Jesus' day of his resurrection, and he was raised from the dead on a Saturday, I mean a Sunday. And on that Sunday evening, he appeared in a room with the disciples 
who had hidden themselves away behind secure doors out of a fear for their life and for their safety, out of fear that the religious Jewish leaders would hunt them down and do the same thing to them that it appeared that they had done to Jesus. And not only are the apostles located in this room, uh, but also the two disciples that had talked with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, as well as many other disciples, were told. And upon Jesus appearing to them, he pronounced his peace over them. He declared shalom upon them, peace. And then he also breathed upon them and imparted the Holy Spirit to them. And then he commissioned them to carry his message of forgiveness to a very... uh, uh, Guilty world, a very sin dominated world to carry the message into the world that God is a forgiving God and that is a perfect match with a people, which is all of us in this world who are a people who are in need of forgiveness. Now, 10 of the 11 remaining apostles were present in that room on that night. We remember Judas has already disqualified himself as an apostle earlier on the day of Jesus's crucifixion. He betrayed Jesus. He then hung himself, uh, committed suicide, and on, but only after declaring to the Jewish religious leaders that he had betrayed innocent blood in betraying Jesus. And so he's off the scene. So the 12 is down to 11. And then we're told that Thomas was absent on that night. And so only 10 of them were present at that time when Jesus appeared to them. Only the Apostle Thomas, verse 24, was absent from the room when when Jesus appeared on that evening. We don't really know why he was absent. There's no explanation given for us in the scriptures. He might have just headed down to Starbucks and gotten a nice French roast, a cup of coffee and a pastry or something. Uh, we don't know. There's some people who find fault with Thomas for being absent from the room. But the fact of the matter is, is there's no condemnation in the scriptures uh, about it. And the disciples didn't even condemn him for being gone. When Thomas returned to that room, they didn't say, where in the world have you been? They didn't chide him for not being present and all. They just simply excitedly explained to them what he had missed. We have seen the Lord. Also interesting to note that when Jesus appeared into the room, the on this particular day, eight days after his first appearance, when he appeared in that room with Thomas being present, he didn't rebuke Thomas for not being present. He rebukes him uh, for his unbelief, but he doesn't blame him in any way for not being present earlier. You know, there are some people who process their sorrow concerning like Thomas here, Jesus's death, and he isn't confident of his resurrection at this point in time, but also his own failure. On that day, all of the apostles had uh, fled Jesus at his greatest moment of need when he was being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. So Jesus is gone. He's got a lot going on in his life, and uh, everybody processes sorrow in a different way. There are some people that when a great loss occurs in their life or a great failure in their life, they want to be surrounded by other people. They don't want to be left alone at all. And then there's another group of people that, that wants to process it utterly alone. 
They don't want a phone call. They don't want a, a contact. They don't want anyone within 10 miles of them. They want to just process this between them and God and nobody else. And we're also different in the way that that we do process difficult things in sorrow. And all of it's lawful because there's all of these uh, different personalities. And so maybe Thomas possessed that kind of personality where he just wanted to process all that was happening here all alone. We certainly do know of Thomas that he wasn't absent because of cowardice at all. When Lazarus, who was a friend of Jesus, he was the brother of Mary and Martha. They lived in a city called Bethany, which was in the area just a stone's throw from Jerusalem in an area known as Judah. It was kind of the headquarters for the Jewish religious leaders down there. So kind of a dangerous place for Jesus to go late in his ministry because the Jewish religious leaders were not only opposing him at that time, but they were seeking to put him to death. And so Jesus was speaking. He found out news that Lazarus was sick unto death. And so Jesus then declared uh, to them that, why don't we go to Bethany now and I'll minister to to uh, Lazarus and all. And then Thomas, as he hears this plan of of Jesus, he then cries out in front of Jesus and the whole group. OK, let's uh, let us also go that we may die with him. <laughs> And, and so this is the kind of attitude that he had. Let's just go. This is what the boss wants to do. I don't know if I agree with this thing. I think it's, we're all going to get killed, but let's go die with him. So no cowardice in him uh, at all. And so and I think, in fact, Thomas's absence from that fear filled room probably testified to the absence of fear in his own life. Upon returning into that room, uh, as Thomas comes back from wherever he was, all of the disciples, as you can imagine, are very, very excited. I mean, they go from one minute, you know, Jesus is gone. He's been crucified. All of their hopes are dashed and they're hiding out for their own lives. And then Jesus appears to them, does what he does with them, blesses them, encourages them, commissions them and all. And then Jesus leaves. They're so excited and what, who can they talk to one another about an event that they've all seen and been a participant in? And then Thomas walks in and here's somebody that doesn't know anything that they can all tell. And so Thomas walks into the room and it's just this barrage of all of them excitedly telling him about the fact that Jesus was just here. He's risen from the dead. It tells us that Thomas must have appeared, uh, re-entered back into that room very shortly after Jesus's uh, departure. And so there's tremendous emotion there in verse 25. You can just picture them all trying to talk over the top of one another to Thomas about what had just happened, what he had just missed. And it's interesting in the original language, the intimation is that not only are they talking over one another, but they're repeating the same thing over and over and over again. So he just gets this wall of sound and testimony of the fact that Jesus is risen and they've seen him and he was here and, and all of this great excitement and the thrill of what they had just experienced. And then you notice in verse 25, Thomas's response, he kills me, really. His response to all of their faith and all of their excitement was just pure unbelief. He said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger 
in the print of the nails and put my hand into his side. I will not believe. Now, you talk about a wrecking ball to ruin a resurrection party. It's the big, I mean, you could not be a bigger quench than this guy is in terms of what he says. Now, we use the term today in the culture. We talk about doubting Thomases. And it comes from this particular Thomas in the Bible and this incident related to his life in the Bible. I think it's important, again, to be reminded that he wasn't a coward, but that he was by nature a doubter. And I would contend uh, even uh, a pessimist for sure. Again, as we noticed earlier, when Jesus proposed going into Bethany and Thomas, his reaction was, let us do so that uh, also that we may die with him. So Jesus proposes going to Bethany to minister to Lazarus. And instead of Thomas thinking the best concerning Jesus's decision, I mean, I mean, here's three and a half years of watching Jesus do miracles. It's not like he doesn't know that Jesus can't do that. I mean, most people would at the top of their mind would be, okay, we're going to go to Bethany. I don't care what kind of shape Lazarus is in. Jesus is going to take care of this. That's not where his mind goes. We're all going to go there and we're all going to die there. His mind went to the absolute worst case scenario. What's the worst thing that could happen to us? The worst thing that could happen to us is we're all going to die. And so that's what he said. Now, don't nudge anybody else in the room, but there are people like this in the world. You may be one of them. Somebody lays something out to you and you don't think, well, you know, the, probably the, the greatest thing that could happen here, or maybe we'll cut the Your mind goes straight to the world's worst thing that could happen, and that's where you anchor. And, be, and the only way you can be budged from that is, is someone to pry you out of there with some kind of a spiritual crowbar. So you understand, Thomas, quite well, you know, some of us in, in, in this If he didn't, another thing about Thomas is if he didn't understand something, then he just, it wasn't in him to pretend at all. If he didn't understand something, he would just let you know. So if if I don't understand something, I may let you know, I may not let you know. It's how I got through school. I mean, I, I was a diligent student, don't get me wrong. I tried as hard as I could. But there were subjects that I, I didn't care for math on, on any level. So I did good in it because uh, I had to work hard. Uh, I didn't like the sciences at, at all. And so the teacher would be up there and describing some kind of this or that or whatever and everything and then get to the end of it. You know, one of the greatest teachers I had was Mr. Demisio in Napa High School. He was a math teacher. Everybody wanted to get him. Not everybody could get him, you know, and he'd get he'd lay this whole thing out. And I'm thinking, OK, this guy's the best. So. I can't criticize him for not knowing what he's saying up here. And I just would listen to Mr. Demisio say, everybody got it? You know, and I'd nod my head just like everybody else got it. Everything. And then I'd go ask the brains in the class afterwards. Now, what in the world was he saying? But Thomas didn't have any of that, not a bone of that in his entire body. When Jesus spoke to the apostles of his coming death upon the cross and and he wanted to comfort their heart with all of that was coming. He spoke to him in John chapter 14 and he said, do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it weren't so, I would have told you. 
And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. Thomas doesn't have the foggiest idea what Jesus is saying there. Jesus has just said they both, all of them know two things. He doesn't know either of those things. And so Thomas uh, candidly just confesses he doesn't have any ability to feign that he does understand. And he said, Lord, we don't know where you're going and how can we know the way? Now, with Thomas, if you showed him a glass that was half full, not only would he declare it half empty, He'd tell you why that half-empty glass would soon be fully empty on the basis of any number of potential catastrophes that could happen within the next five minutes. I don't say any of this to be critical of him because I tend to like these kind of people. And I also recognize a bit of this in myself. And uh, I think all of us can relate on some level, some very, very well. There are some people who are just by nature... You are doubters. We are doubters. We are skeptical by nature. We don't just believe because someone has said something. Someone says something, that's the start of an investigation. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, let everything be established. We get on Google. We get here. We get there. We can have a doctor from the Mayo Clinic diagnose us, and we'll be online checking out his diagnosis before the day is over on things. So we're just skeptical about uh, uh, believing anything on the basis of something that someone has just happened to say. Now, most of us are polite doubters. We are polite skeptics uh, and because we're silent doubters and we're silent skeptics. But we're doubters and skeptics nonetheless. I don't openly uh, confess my skepticism to people or my doubt to people as they might run. I might run into some place and they start to share this and that and everything. And, the, and they're laying this whole thing out and all. And I don't want a confrontation. And I don't want a big discussion out of it. So I'll just sit there. Wow, really? That's something. Boy, I didn't know that and all that and everything. And then the second the conversation is over, I turn away. I don't believe a word of it in terms of, uh, you know, those UFOs and the whole thing and the deal or whatever they're talking about. And I just walk away. But I don't voice it. I'm a polite skeptic. I'm a polite uh, doubter. But a full-blooded, as many of us are, full-blooded doubter and skeptic nonetheless. Now, you can't help but notice the staggering demand that Thomas makes for of Jesus for the privilege of securing his faith. Jesus is so patient with this guy. Again, verse 25, unless I see his hands in his hands, the print of the nails, put my finger in right into the holes of the print of the nails and put my hand to his side, I will not believe. Wow, Thomas, is that all you want? Is that all it takes to move you? Can we give you like $10 million in gold bullion? I mean, what else do you want to throw in here on top of this kind of a demand of God? And then notice, and I just think it, it just shows how the stunning grace of Jesus that he shows toward Thomas and his willingness to come down to the level of Thomas's demands here in order to reach this doubting disciple of his in verse 26 and 27 it's interesting to me that Jesus makes Thomas wait eight days before he appears to him. So for eight days, Thomas is forced to listen to this unceasing 
repetition and recanting and re-speaking of the events of the previous Sunday concerning all of Jesus' resurrection here and everything they're talking and Peter's talking and John is talking, all the apostles are talking, everybody else is, all of the excitement that, that they're sharing and the conversations and, and everything. And you can imagine as it's just being said back and forth all through the entire week and yet at the end of eight days, Thomas remains completely unmoved by any of it. After You talk about stubborn. After eight days, he hasn't been moved an inch toward faith in Jesus' resurrection. Absolutely unmoved by all of it. And then Jesus appeared in the room as miraculously as eight days earlier. He greets him the same way. Shalom. Peace be to you. Then Jesus invited Thomas, verse 27, not only to witness the wounds in his hands and in his side with a sense of his eyes, but he invited him to also now touch as a proof his wounds in his hands and in his side. And it tells us that Jesus had heard Thomas's demands, though Thomas was unaware of it, the Sunday before. He'd been listening to all of that. This is a pretty awkward moment. You ever had an awkward moment in life? Yeah, all of us have. You ever have an awkward moment with God? Yes, I've had a few. But imagine how awkward that room is for Thomas at that moment. Unbelieving concerning Jesus resurrected from the dead. And then he stands there and he makes that offer to Thomas in front of everyone else. Offering to meet the, the specific demand that he had placed upon him. For faith. I bet Thomas felt pretty small at that time. Then you notice Jesus' exhortation to Thomas in verse 27. Jesus said, Do not be unbelieving, but believing. You could translate it just as equally stop doubting and believe. Now the question gets raised did Thomas ever actually put Jesus' body to the physical test? Did he touch the holes? Did he touch the spear? Uh, mark on the on the side, and I think it's unthinkable that that he would have done that. And in the passage, I think we see clearly his response to Jesus's invitation is not a physical one, but it is a verbal response. And you notice his response in verse 28. He said, "My Lord and my God." Seeing and hearing. The resurrected Jesus with his own eyes and his own ears caused all of his unbelief, all of his skepticism to give way to faith. And he makes a confession of faith directed to Jesus. It contains two declarations, great declarations and confessions concerning Jesus. He called him my God. He ascribed deity to Jesus, declared him to be God, God the Son and the Son of God, who Jesus is. So he ascribed deity to Jesus, recognizing him to be God. One of the most beautiful passages in the Old Testament that speaks to the deity of Christ. There are a lot of people who profess to be Christian groups or Christian people. 
uh, that deny the deity of Christ. If he's not divine, then he's not perfect. And if he's not perfect, he can't die for our sins. You don't have forgiveness of sins unless you have, unless the one that died on the cross is the Son of God. But you have Jehovah Witnesses who claim to be Christian, declaring that he was the brother of Lucifer, that he was merely an angel. But in, in the face of, the, you know, passages like this, and you need to recognize that in your own uh, you know, your own faith to recognize th- that they're wrong related to that. This is a, a declaration that was uh, made concerning his deity. And then he said, my Lord, not only my God, but my Lord. That was a, a declaration of Thomas's personal faith in him. You're my Lord now. He, he's confessing his commitment, giving the position of lordship to, uh, to Jesus in his life. Now, it's very important to recognize, too, that when he makes this uh, statement to Jesus, my Lord and my God, Jesus doesn't uh, put it off. Jesus doesn't say, wait a second, get a grip on yourself. I'm just a great man, a great teacher, a great human example in human history. Don't ascribe tea to me. What are you? I'm just an angel. He doesn't do that. He not only receives the worship. He not only accepts the assessment, he affirms the confession that Thomas makes concerning him as his Lord and as being divine. And so if Thomas had been in error speaking this concerning Jesus, then Jesus wouldn't have hesitated to correct him. But rather than correcting him, he received that worship of him. He received the assessment because what Thomas declared to him was true. But do notice in verse 29 that Jesus then went on to rebuke or to correct Thomas. He said, Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed. In essence, Thomas, there's a higher faith. There's a more blessed faith than a faith based upon sight, based upon the senses. And blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas makes a big mistake, and it's important for us to recognize the mistake that he makes because it's made all day, every day, everywhere in this world. He had said, unless I see Unless I put my finger into the print of the nails, unless I touch and feel him for myself, I will not believe. So he's a man who will base his faith only upon something that can be measured or understood by one of his senses. If he can see it, he'll believe. If he can touch it, he'll believe. And to him, the highest and the surest foundation for a man's faith is that touching, that feeling, the senses. But in this, he is wrong, and Jesus told him as much. And this exchange in the scriptures here is recorded here because, again, this is a prevalent uh, thing that goes on in the world today and And many people believe, just as Thomas did, and are as much in need of Jesus' rebuke as as he was. Thomas wasn't the first disciple to have doubted Jesus. 
even his resurrection from the dead. The other disciples had all doubted before him. And their doubt was expressed in huddling and fear behind secure doors. But Thomas did something that none of the others did. He demanded something that the others did not demand. And he demanded the way in which Jesus had to prove his resurrection in order to secure his faith. And that's his vital mistake. That's the big mistake that he makes. Thomas laid down the one and only way. God, this is the one and only way that you can secure my faith. Here's what it sounds like today. God, if you do this, then I will believe in you. Or God, if you don't do this, then I won't believe in you. That's what Thomas is doing on that, that day a week after Jesus' resurrection. The problem with all of that is it intimates that we're smarter than God, that we're wiser than God, when in fact we are not. It also reverses the role between God and man that is very, very unhealthy and even dangerous because it puts us in the position of the leader in a relationship with God rather than being the follower. It puts us in the position of being the teacher and God in the place of the learner. It puts us in the place, the position of the initiator and God in the position of the responder to us. And so the whole role, the whole thing is reversed. It's all backwards. I want a relationship with God, but I want to be God in that relationship. That's what he's doing here. We have a right to ask for satisfactory evidence for our faith from God. But we do not have a right to demand the form that that satisfactory evidence is to take. And one of the reasons is, is that we don't have the slightest idea what satisfactory evidence for our faith should look like. To Thomas, the surest foundation for faith would be seeing. It would be touching. The surest foundation for his faith is something that can be measured by one of his senses. But in this, he is absolutely wrong. There is something far more sure as a foundation for our faith than touching or seeing. And that something is basing my faith upon the word of God. God has given us the highest evidence of all for believing in the fact that Jesus is the promised Christ and Messiah, for believing he is the son of God. And then for putting our faith in him as our Savior and as our Lord as a result. And that evidence for for that faith, the foundation of that faith, the highest and the surest foundation is his word, the Bible. One of the problems with a faith based upon the senses is that our senses can change. They can be fooled. I watch these people do tricks on TV or whatever. I'm not into like magic and magicians and tricks and illusion and all that stuff enough to pay good money to go see it. Maybe you are. But here, take this card and this and move and here and this and that and then put the person in a little box and cut it in half and then she still come and then the whole and move and here and on. I wonder how the. 
And I sit there and I think to myself, that is amazing. I wish I knew the secret to it. But it alarms me because they have fooled my senses into believing something is true that isn't true. They are fooling me and I cannot keep myself from being fooled on the basis of my senses. It troubles me. If we live long enough, every one of us, the day will come when our senses will fail us. If we live long enough, our minds are going to begin to fail us. And in some cases, fail us altogether. Our memories are going to fail us. Our eyes are going to play tricks on us. But the Word of God will never fail us because it never, ever changes. Thomas didn't fail in asking questions, but he failed in where he took those questions to for answers. And Thomas should have taken his questions concerning the truthfulness of Jesus' resurrection to the Scriptures. And if he had taken them to the Word of God, his questions would have been readily answered by the Word of God. Isaiah, Daniel, David, and the Psalms all spoke of the Messiah's death. Isaiah, David, declared that... He would be crucified among transgressors and thieves. Isaiah declared that he would be buried with the rich in his death. Isaiah chapter 53 gives us a description of Jesus' crucifixion 740 years before the event occurred. And the only thing that even comes close to the accuracy and the beauty, the majesty, the awesomeness of that description so many centuries prior is the account of the eyewitnesses in the Gospels. Nothing else comes even close. With the Holy Spirit's inspiration, David wrote of the Messiah's resurrection in Psalm 16. Nor, he said to God, will you allow your Holy One, that is the Messiah, to see corruption. And on and on and on we could go. And you know that I can go on and on about this particular subject because I love it. But Jesus fulfilled in his first coming over 300 prophecies. Scriptures that had been given in the Old Testament, when you put them together, they produce a verbal portrait of one unique human being so that when he came into the world, we would look at the description that God gave in the scriptures, then look at his life and come to the conclusion, the right conclusion, that this is the promised Messiah. And all of the other scriptures that remain for the Messiah to fulfill, he's going to fulfill at his second coming. Hundreds, scores, dozens of prophecies written concerning the coming Messiah, including his death, his burial, his resurrection. Now, up in that room on that night when Jesus appears to Thomas eight days after his resurrection from the dead, the Apostle Peter's in that room. He's one of the apostles. The Apostle Peter later wrote in the first chapter of his second epistle. He said, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received, Jesus did, on the Mount of Transfiguration. 
He received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven and we were with him on the holy mountain. Then he said, we have the more sure word of prophecy which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Translation. Peter speaking to that early church. So you can't believe what I've seen. I was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. I saw him transfigured into his eternal glory, saw it with my own eyes. And then as as if that wasn't enough, God spoke and declared concerning the son, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. What I've seen, what I've heard of the glorified Christ, what I've touched, what I know of Christ and Jesus as the Christ on the base basis of my senses, I could go on and on and on with you, but my faith is not founded on what I've experienced in my senses. I believe in him on the basis of the more sure word of prophecy, that he matches without any contradiction to the fullest the Old Testament picture that has been painted prophetically of him, and my faith is based upon him as the Messiah, as the Son of God, because he has fulfilled those scriptures and not on the basis of my senses. That's an astonishing thing for that man to say. And then he exhorts us. To make sure that our faith is not based upon what we feel or we sense or we see or we hear on any given day concerning Christ, that he is the Christ, but solely on the basis of scriptures, because the senses can be fooled, the senses can be overwhelmed by the tragedy and difficulty and confusion of events that occur personal and national and international in this world. But the word of God never changes. And its witness and its testimony and its voice to the fact that Jesus is the Christ and he is the savior of the world and he is the son of God. And we ought to put our faith in him for that. That voice is never hindered. It's never silenced. It never weakens. It's never fooled. It never changes. And so Peter says, you look at me and you want to know what gets me through. You want to know why my faith, the highest, surest, purest foundation for my faith. It's not my experience with Christ. It's not my history with Christ. Nothing to do with my senses. It's based supremely and solely upon the word of God. John's words, John, the writer of the Gospel of John, There in verses 30 and 31, following this event concerning Thomas, they're not there by any kind of coincidence. When he said, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written back to the word of God. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of God, and that believing you may have life that is everlasting life in his name. In other words, John is saying, take a Bible, take the Gospel of John, and read it. And see if this Jesus that you read of here is not a perfect match to God's description of the Messiah in the Old Testament. And when you see that he is, that is the sure foundation for putting your faith in him. Not feeling something, not touching something, not seeing something, not demanding some supernatural event. We have a right to ask for satisfactory evidence for our faith in Jesus as the Messiah and as our Savior and as our Lord. But what we do not have the right to do is what Thomas did here. And that is to demand what form the evidence is to take. We are to be willing to accept the evidence that God knows is the highest and the surest basis for a person's faith in him. And that comes from the prophetic scriptures. And so often a person will say something like Thomas did here. I'll believe in Jesus if he does such and such for me. Yes, that would be the thing that would secure my faith forever. I'd never be moved from believing in Jesus if he would just do this kind of a thing for me. And then when Jesus fails to meet your demand, you think that that proves that you have a reason for not believing in him for salvation. This goes on more than I can tell you. You know. When in fact... Jesus is just merely sparing you from putting your faith in some kind of a weak, feeble, sensory experience rather than upon the rock-solid, unchanging foundation of his word. A faith based upon that can withstand all that we'll face on our journey home to heaven in this very fallen and perilous place related to faith. Perhaps you're like Thomas, born doubter, born skeptic, born pessimist. You need the, just the unmistakable black and white as proof, as a basis for your faith. And God has given it to you. In his word and in the light of his word and the perfect testimony that it is to Jesus as the savior of the world, he would rebuke any unbelief in this room as fully and surely as he did it 2000 years ago with Thomas by saying, do not be unbelieving, but believing. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, you know us so well, you know we're but dust. You know this world that we live in, we don't even scratch the surface of understanding 
what you see every day, what you know goes on in this world every day. We don't even understand fully, Lord, the devil, his lies, his deceptions, the level of deception, spiritual deception that's upon the world. All of these things, Lord, that can assault us in our faith. And who but our creator, who but the creator of this heavens and this earth, Lord, prior to its fall, who could know, Lord, where the only place that a faith could be anchored, sure, and steadfast and immovable. And we think we know, Lord, we think we know so much. We demand so much so often of you. One proof of our own, something based upon the senses, and we lose sight of how inferior that is to the evidence and the proof that you have given us, the foundation, and the rock that you have given us, Lord. We thank you for this account of Thomas's life and this incident in his life so that we might learn from his mistake and not make it. Lord, we think about Thomas as he's going to go and die a martyr's death. Have the faith to withstand that. You gave him a faith based in the scriptures to withstand that. And we thank you, Lord, that the same faith is found in your word for our life and our journey, our ministry and testimony for you. Thank you for your word today and how they witness to our Savior, Lord how they speak to us of him. They give us the peace that our faith is well placed. Our confidence is well rested. Thank you, Lord. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.